And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Well, good morning, church. Oh boy, you're half asleep. Good morning, church. That's better, that's better. I know it's rainy outside and all the non-Floridians, that gave them an excuse to stay home today. And you gotta toughen up, people, you're in Florida. Rain doesn't stop us from doing things, right? That's right, we're Floridians. Well, hey, we're back in Genesis and last week we saw Abraham fail a test, right? Uh, God had promised him land. He had done some miraculous steps of faith. He had left his homeland. He had struck out. He settled in Canaan where God put him, and he, de- he had claimed a land for God. He had obeyed God. He was definitely progressing in this life of faith, but then God tests him. He sends him a famine in order to test who it actually was that Abram was trusting, and that test revealed that Abram was trusting himself. And the Bible tells us that he went down to Egypt, which in scriptures is rarely a good thing. So he left this promised land that God had given him. He goes to Egypt, he relies upon it. His sin deepens and becomes more severe. But God in his grace constrains the consequences of of, um, Abraham's sin and he brings him back and the story ends showing us a beautiful picture of Abraham repenting and once again worshiping God. Our passage this morning opens up with a new test. The previous test was based upon poverty and famine. This test is based upon prosperity. And so what we see in this test, God isn't wondering who will Abraham trust like in the previous chapter. And this test, he's examining what Abraham wants his story to be and how Abraham envisions his own life. What he does here in this test, God tests his ambition for his life and what he wants out of his life. 
But, you know, I look across the audience, and I know most of you pretty well, and I can say that I see a lot of people that do have ambition to one degree or another. Some of you are very ambitious, right? Some of you used to be very ambitious, but life has tempered the extent of your ambition. I think all of us, to one degree or another, uh, if I were to wager and I could look into your life, I would find that you are ambitious for something, okay? Uh, You know, you're probably not like Wanda Holloway. Uh, In Houston, 30 years ago, Wanda Holloway Uh, Her unchecked ambition uh, caused her to basically endanger the life of another woman whose name was Verna Heath. Some of you might remember that story. Wanda so desperately wanted her middle school daughter to make the middle school cheerleading squad that she hired a hitman to take out Verna Heath who was the mother of the captain of the cheerleading squad, thinking that if the mom is killed, the daughter would be so distraught she would quit the cheerleading squad, which would open up a space for her daughter to fill. That's unchecked ambition, folks. (laughs) And I think we all know the danger of unchecked ambition. And I doubt, as I look across the audience, that that any of you are so ambitious that you're gonna hire a hitman, okay? Uh, But, Uh, Would our ambition lead us to sin? Would our ambition lead us to lie? Would our ambition lead us to to step on the ambitions of someone else because we perceive them as a threat to what we wanted for our lives? Would we riot and destroy in order to have our ambitions fulfilled? Would we compromise our integrity to get what we wanted? David Hume was a Scottish philosopher from the 18th century, and he wrote on ethics, and one of his famous sayings about, is about ambition, where he says, ambition is the most incurable and inflexible of passions. And our story this morning, God is testing Abraham's faith and Lot's faith by testing their ambition. So by way of maybe organizing the story, we're gonna put this into three different phases. The first of which we see a picture of godly ambition in verses five to nine as we look at the life of Abram. Now let let me summarize these verses. You know, Abram and his extended family have become very wealthy. They had lots of gold and silver. They had flocks before they went to Egypt. But when they went to Egypt, as part of that whole story, if you remember, Pharaoh just inundated them with more flocks. And in that day, like a nomadic people, Abraham and Lot and all of these, there were nomads. They went from place to place and their wealth and their financial prosperity, one of the ways it was measured was the size of their herds and their flocks. And so they would tend to move from one area of pasture to another area of pasture into watering holes. And there weren't a lot of watering holes in this part of Canaan and and Israel, what would later be the nation of Israel. And so here they are, they have too many flocks, too much, uh, too big of flocks, too many herders. They're getting in each other's way and they're starting to fight with one another. And Abram's concerned. And he's right to be. He says, listen, we live in a land where we're the strangers. We're the aliens. We're the immigrant here. 
And this land is filled with Canaanites. These were the, the, the natural people of that land and they lived in large cities. And the Perizzites, the Perizzites were essentially Canaanites who were the rural folks like Abram and Lot were. They too were herders. And so, so here you have the Perizzites and Abram and Lot and they're all vying for you know, sparse land that was not necessarily fertile at certain times of the year. And Abram rightly so says, we can't be at each other's throats. We need to have each other's backs in case they want to take us out. And, and by the way, just so we get the idea, you think, well, I mean, why couldn't they take him out? It's just Abram and his lot, you know, and he doesn't even have any kids yet. Understand the scope of what we're talking about here. In chapter 14, Lot is going to be kidnapped and held for ransom. And rather than pay the ransom, Abram is going to launch a military campaign, and he calls all the men in his clan, his family that are under his control that answer to him. And when he makes that call for the trained soldiers, the men who had been trained as soldiers to come and meet him, there were 318 men. Okay, this is the size of two military companies in modern day language. So he had two armed companies of soldiers at his disposal. So this was a huge enterprise. And, and that's what makes verse 9 so amazing, such an example of, of godly ambition. He says in verse 9, is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right, <clears throat> or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. This is an amazing response to this issue. You see, Abram is the older patriarch. He's the supreme leader of the family and the tribe and the clan, right? So he has first rights to everything. It's his choice to settle on the best land. He deserves that because of his position. He needs it because he has more of the flocks and the herds of the greater majority of the need. And so he should have, according to culture at that time, the first dibs, but he gives up his right and he allows Lot to cast the deciding vote. What would lead Abraham to do this? What's going on here? Um, I appreciate Tim Keller points out that Abraham had three relationships at play here and those three relationships really gave him three options. But something was going to have to suffer based upon the choice he made. I mean, think about the relationships. He had a relationship with Lot. That relationship right now was in jeopardy. And, and he had a relationship with God that he you know, presumably wanted to keep in good relationship with after having learned lessons in Egypt. And then he had a relationship with his money, his financial prosperity, his future financial security, because all of this and the decisions that were made had ramifications to his industry and his security. Now, now, Abraham could have concluded and chosen that the best thing for him to do was for he and Lot to stay together, which would mean that they had to find another land. And they would leave Canaan and basically repeat the same mistake of Egypt, take matters into their own hands. And in doing so, he would have hindered and jeopardized his relationship with God. So that's, that's a bad option. Uh, technically, 
he could have pulled rank, right? He could have stayed in the land, which would have kept him in good relationship with God because he's not leaving the land that God had told him to settle in. But he could have pulled rank and said, Lot, sorry, buddy. You know, you've been on my coattails now for 40 years. It's time for you to leave dad's basement. Strike out on your own. You're, you're, you're responsible. He would have been okay with God, maybe, you know, technically, but he certainly would have forever jeopardized his relationship with Lot. Or, finally, he could do what he actually did, which kept him in good relationship with God and was incredibly generous to Lot and kept their relationship whole, but it put his future financial growth at risk. Abraham chose the one option that would keep him right with God and right with his fellow man, but it cost him the sense of security for his own future. And this is what an example of godly faith and godly ambition is all about. He first valued his relationship with God. Godly ambition first values the relationship with God. Second, with others. Third, our own personal needs. Now, how could this happen? What, what had transpired in Abraham's life that would allow him to subject his own financial prosperity and maybe even jeopardize it at that point? He has no idea how this is gonna play out and instead honor God and his nephew before himself. Well, if we go back to Hebrews chapter 11, that chapter that we have you know, sprung from and referred back to throughout this annual theme of living by faith, we find these verses in Hebrews chapter 11, verse eight. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Unlike with the the episode in the trip to Egypt, Abraham is not looking and making decisions simply due to the physical factors before him. Remember last week, we showed that how, okay, physically, logically, the data says do this, and he did that, and it led him to disaster. But now he says, no, living and having a godly ambition means that we submit everything to God. He's walking by faith. He's trusting in the promises of God. And his course of action here, his decision-making is first spiritual and it's first between him and God, which then affects the physical realm. This is the characteristic of godly ambition. With Abraham, we see this picture of godly ambition because the spiritual life of faith The eternal dimension is determining what his uh, physical realm will be. He's not looking with just physical eyes. He's looking at that city that God has promised. He's looking with spiritual eyes. He's listening with spiritual ears. He's thinking with a spiritual mind first. And this is what affects the physical realm and the physical decisions that he ultimately makes. Not so with Lot. With God, with Abraham, we have a picture 
of godly ambition. With Lot, we see someone who is thinking physically first. And this leads him into the pitfalls of ungodly ambition. Verse 10 says, And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, and the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and he journeyed east, thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. These verses, if you remember your literature class in in college or high school, these verses are filled with ominous foreshadowing, aren't they? I mean, there's foreshadowing everywhere here. So let's set the context. Lot is standing at Bethel. Bethel is one of the highest places in Palestine. It's roughly 3,000 feet above sea level. He looks to his east towards the Jordan River and towards the Dead Sea, which is actually below sea level. And because of that height and distance and height and whatnot, or difference in height, he can see for miles beyond the Jordan River. The Jordan River was the boundary of Canaan, the promised land that God had brought. He can see past the boundaries of the land that God had brought them. And there in the plains of Jordan, around the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, it's fertile, it's green, right? It's beautiful land. But everyone, right? Can you imagine you're the original audience, you're the original Israelites that Moses gives this to? And there's this ominous phrase, it was like Egypt. Can you imagine those folks hearing that? They're going in and remember, no lot, you don't want Egypt, man. <laughs> Trust us on that. Stay away from Egypt. It's a trap. And of course, everyone by this time knows, yeah, you don't want to be around Sodom and Gomorrah, right? This is not a good thing. Lot journeys east to this fertile land. Again, it's an ominous factor here. You know, if you consider everything that we've looked at, we started in Genesis 1 months ago, and in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sin, and God expels them to the garden, which direction does he expel them towards? East, right? When, When Cain murders Abel and he's expelled from the family, which direction is he expelled towards and he's moved towards? East. Okay, um, when the, after the flood, when humanity decides that they're going to rebel against God, they're not going to disperse, they're going to stay together, and they're going to build a tower in you know, honor of themselves, the first thing they do is they band together and they move east to the plains of Shinar. And that's where they do this. You see, in the book of Genesis, everything that we've seen so far traveling east means moving further and further away from God and his presence and more and more into sin and a destructive situation. Ominous foreshadowing here. The stage is being set for what we'll ultimately see in chapter 14 and then in chapters 18 and 19 when the story, you know, goes bad. Lot's ambition is ungodly because his concern, first and foremost, is his own financial well-being and his future success. How many times do we make our decisions based on that one factor right there? That one issue. 
right? It trumps everything. And he sees this opportunity to secure his financial future, to grab what is best out of all the options. And so what does he do? He puts his uncle Abraham, who's been so good to him, in jeopardy so that he can get what he wants. His ambition is unchecked and it's ungodly because he's put himself first and he has no regard for his uncle. Warren Wearsby writes that the heart of every problem is the problem in the heart. Would you read that sentence with me? Let's say it out loud. Ready? Here we go. The heart of every problem is the problem in the heart. Lot's heart was centered on wealth and worldly achievement, Dr. Wearsby writes, while Abraham wanted only to please the Lord. If, if this were a play, this would be a four-act tragedy, Right? If Shakespeare were writing this, he'd put it in four acts and it would be a tragedy. In in Acts chapter one, we see Lot looking towards Sodom, right? And then he moves eastward from Bethel. Remember the name of Bethel? Bethel meant the house of God. And to travel east, he had to go through Ai, which meant ruin. (laughs) He goes from the house of God through ruin down to across the borders of the land that God had brought them to. He goes outside the land that God had promised and he settles in the plains of Sodom and he thinks he's got it made. He pitches his tents there. He's got all the green pasture. He's got all of the water. He's got the best land. He's around the best cities that that culture had. They were wealthy. They were prosperous. They had all the modern luxuries that they could offer back in that day. His financial future is bright. In Act 1, you see him looking towards Sodom. In Act 2, chapter 14, you see that he moves into Sodom. He's no longer you know, pitched his tents out in the plains on the outskirts of town. Now he moves his family into the city, sets up residence there. He incorporates himself and his family into the culture. He gets wrapped up into the troubles of the city. In chapter 14, Uncle Abraham has to launch a special ops mission to save his bacon. But so far, he thinks life's going pretty good. And it is going good for a little while. So much so that in Act 3... Chapter 18 tells us he's now a leader in the city. He has prestige. He has position. He has financial wealth and success. He has fame. He has everything that his ambition wanted. But his family and even himself are are indistinguishable from the residents of this city who are known for their sin and their debauchery. He's gained everything that he wanted, but he's lost his family and his legacy of faith. And so in Act 4, chapter 19 of Genesis, you see him fleeing the city. He's lost all of that that he gained through his ungodly ambition, including his family, even his wife, who is so in love with the city that she disobeys God and turns back and looks in longing at this city of sin and it costs her her life. This is the pitfalls of ungodly, unrighteous ambition. You know, a few centuries later, another man is gonna face this kind of a test. 
He's at a crossroad where he has to make decisions. His name is Jeremiah the prophet, and like Lot, he's got lots of voices in his ears, ambitious voices that were loud, that were encouraging him and recommending courses of action that made sense to those who look with only the physical eyes and think only with spiritual minds. But Jeremiah listened to God. God tells Jeremiah, he tells all of us who are enamored with unrighteous, ungodly ambition, are you seeking great things for yourself? Don't do it. Are you seeking great things for yourself? Don't do it. Some of you here this morning or maybe watching online, maybe the reality of your life this morning is that you are stuck in the pitfalls created by ungodly ambition. You're, cho- you're chasing all that our modern-day Sodom and Gomorrah puts before you and offers you, not realizing that your ambition is leading you into a damnable trap. You know, even, it's interesting, even secular and irreligious researchers and pundits are starting to recognize the destructive potential of unchecked ambition. In 2013, Jessica Stillman wrote an article. She, she pulled together a lot of this research and wrote an article in Inc. Magazine, and the article was entitled, Is Too Much Ambition Making You Miserable? And so what she brought into that article was the results of, a, of an astounding research project. It was the results from the Terman Life Cycle Study. This study began in 1922 when a group of very gifted children from across the nation were identified, and for the next almost 90 years, researchers and psychiatrists and anthropologists followed the lives of this group of people for almost 90 years. From that study, they saw, they made some conclusions. For example, they saw within that group that some of those kids had high ambition. And what they realized is that when you get somebody who's got a lot of ambition, they will tend to get more education at a better school, they will get a higher status job, and they will make more money over their lifetime. Duh. I didn't need a 90-year study to prove that one, right? I think we all know that happens and can happen. But there were other results that they brought out that aren't so obvious. They said, for example, that people that, that more ambitious of that group, they may have gotten more money and a better job and more education, but they also lived a shorter life. They had a life that was less happy and a life that was ultimately less satisfying than their other peers. Another uh, psychologist who studies ambition in the human condition says this, Tim Kasher says, research has shown that the pursuit of materialistic values like money, possessions, and social status, the fruits of career successes, leads to lower well-being and more distress in individuals. It is also damaging to relationships. Furthermore, for all of you younger people here, those of you who are in the millennials and, and younger, 
The research is showing that you are significantly more ambitious than my generation and the boomer generation and the World War II generation. You are much more ambitious, but as a result, you are at greater risk, get this, for bipolar disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, depression, and an earlier death than we Gen Xers who tend to be just more ambivalent towards life. So you're much more ambitious, but you're also much more in danger from that ambition. You have so much in common with the people of Jesus's day and time who only looked and listened and thought with the physical rather than the spiritual eyes and ears and mind of faith. To them, to you, Jesus says this, if any of you want to be my follower, you must give up your own way. You must, you must surrender your ungodly ambitions for your life. You must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, if you try to hang on to your ambitions that are ungodly, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world? You fulfill all of your ambitions, but you lose your own soul. What benefit is that? Perhaps you are a, a, a person who's not following Christ this morning. If this is the case, and you've been living for yourself, charting out your own direction, maybe like Lot, you, you want to have material success, you want to have fame, you want to have prestige, and maybe you've even achieved a lot of that. Hear the words of Jesus and the warning that he gives. He says, you're like that rich man who's accumulated everything. He got everything he ever desired and wanted. He built his entire life, but until he waited, he didn't realize until it was too late that what he had built his life on was the foundation of sand. And when the storm came along, everything is destroyed and blown away like it, like it was for Lot. How much better is it to repent? If you're not a follower of Christ, to repent, to trust in Christ, to let go of all of that empty, vain, personal ambition, instead pursue a relationship with Christ and allow him to give you a life whose foundation is on an eternal rock that can never be shaken can never be blown away. Some of you are non-Christians this morning and you're checking things out. I hope that you'll hear those words of Jesus. For those of you who are Christians, who've been sucked into maybe ungodly ambition and as a result, you're, you're, you feel trapped in the pitfalls that that kind of ambition may bring and you're looking for a way out, a way to be restored to the joy of your salvation. I want us to look at the rest of the passage and close with a path that we see in this passage, the path of righteous ambition. Verse 14 says, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent. He moved his whole operation, in other words. 
And he came and he settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. You see in Abraham's response to the Lord in this situation, a path that that is laid out for all of us that will result in a righteous ambition that honors God. First of all, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he looked, but he didn't do so on his own wisdom. He looked when and where God directed him to. What he sees there, right, is is so much greater than the promises of Sodom. God puts before him a vision that by following God's agenda and having as his ambition God's glory and God's kingdom first and foremost, that God in turn would bless him and do so much more for him than Sodom could ever give him. He puts before him a blessing that's just mind-boggling, right? And so with Abraham... Here we see a great example. It starts by looking at where God tells us to look, when God tells us to look. If you're in the pitfalls of ungodly ambition, start by lifting your eyes and looking, as we said a few weeks ago from Hebrews 12, looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. Look where God commands you to look. God says, look to Jesus first and foremost. It doesn't matter how deep the pitfall is, how badly you feel that you're stuck in this situation due to decisions perhaps that you have made that are the result of ungodly. It doesn't matter how deep it, that pitfall is. It starts by looking to Jesus. Look where God tells you to look. Look to Jesus. Look where God tells you to look. Look at nature and his creation and see the glory of God, the holiness, the awesome power of God, who if he can create this world like that, he can pull you out of the pitfall that you find yourself in. Look back on your life and the events of your life and see how God has been faithful to you even when you've been faithless like Abraham was in Egypt. Look at how God has sustained you and constrained the consequences of your sin. And even if you're in a pitfall of ungodly ambition this morning, do you know it would be profoundly worse if you were not a child of God. He is constraining that for you because of his love for you. Look on your life right now. See that he has not forsaken you. He has not turned his back on you. He has mitigated the results of the sinful decisions that we make, and he waits with open arms, and he's ready to embrace you and receive you back into perfect fellowship with him, just like the father in the, in the gospels does with his prodigal son. Starts by lifting up our eyes and looking where God directs us. And then you see, secondly, Abraham lifted up his feet and he walked the entire land of Canaan. What's going on here? So he looks where God tells him and, he, and then the next thing you see is he takes a walkabout, as the Australians would say, right? He does a walkabout. He walks all around Canaan. What's going on? You see, in the ancient world, the, the kings, the, like let's say you're the king of the city-state of Sodom, There was an annual kind of ritual and it's full of pomp and circumstance and the king would come out and he would walk the walls of the city 
And maybe he would walk the boundaries of the surrounding region that, were the, that belonged to him. It was, a, it was a way of signifying, I'm king, I own this, this is mine. Abraham's walking all around Canaan. He's walking all around the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And what he's doing here is a beautiful picture of faith. He's appropriating the promises of God. He's claiming what God is giving him. He's trusting that what God has revealed to him will come true in time, and he's acting on those promises. Church, if you are in the pitfall of ungodly ambition, look to Jesus and then believe the promises that God has given to you, that he will forgive you, that he will restore you, that he will fill you with power and peace. Appropriate what your heavenly Father has given you through the purchased blood of Jesus Christ. And the last thing you see here in this passage with Abraham is he lifts up his eyes and he lifts up his feet and then he lifts up his heart and builds an altar in worship to God. Abraham relocates to an area where God directs, an area that he will become his base of operations where he builds an incredible life He has incredible relationships, redemptive relationships with people who are pagan and influences them towards his God. In this place, Mamre, takes him to Mamre. Uh, Mamre, uh, if you look at the Hebrew derivation, where where that word comes from, it's derived from a word which means to be well-fed, to be fat. Now, fat in our culture is not a good thing, but in that culture, it meant you'd made it, right? You were prosperous. You had plenty of food to eat. You weren't hungry anymore. You were wealthy. You were esteemed. So some of us, if we could time travel, we'd be in really good shape in the ancient world, right? That's what it meant. Abraham settles in where God directs him, and he begins to worship him. Church, don't miss that this morning. We avoid the destructiveness of unchecked ambition when our first and highest ambition is to worship God. We, we have in our church a, a ministry pathway, right? It's the, it's the way that we encourage you to take, to, to engage with our vision and the mission of our church to bring gospel restoration to people's deepest needs in our broken world. How do you engage with that mission? If you look at that pathway, um, at the very center of that pathway, the core of it is worship. And out of worship flows biblical community and being growing with one another and serving one another. And out of the worship flows things like city impact that we get engaged in and church planting and the spread of the gospel. But it all flows out of worship. We avoid the destructiveness of unchecked ambition when our first and highest ambition is to worship God. And so Christian, this morning, if you find yourself in a place of destitution, maybe, a place of pain and want, a place of spiritual or economic or emotional bondage, a place where you don't know where to go because you know, your self-oriented ambition has made a complete mess of things, lift up your eyes. 
Look to your Savior. Lift up your hands. Receive the grace that he offers you this morning. The power that is at your disposal through the Holy Spirit. Lift up your heart and praise Jesus for his ambition was to fulfill God's plan, which required him to go to the cross and pay the penalty of every one of our unchecked, self-oriented, ungodly ambitions that we've had in our life. But church, this path to righteous ambition on this path, this righteous ambition will lead you to a life that is well-fed, that is satisfying, that's fat. Amen? Let's pray. Father, for those of us who maybe are stuck in a place where ungodly ambition has taken us, would you give us the grace we need this morning to lift our eyes and see you? Would you give us the power we need to to embrace the promises that you give to us? Will you give us the faith that we need to appropriate the Holy Spirit who can lift us up from the deepest pit that we've dug through our vain, sinful ambition, can put us on a rock and into a life that would honor you, and bring about true peace and joy? For the person here, Lord, who doesn't know you, who isn't following you, who thinks that life is defined by what kind of job they have, how much money they make, what kind of person they get as a spouse, what kind of toys they play with, what kind of car they drive. For that person who's been deceived by the message of our Sodom, would you open their eyes? Would you help them to see that this is not the path to peace and security and significance. This is the path to destruction. Would you give them a heart, Lord, that wants Jesus more than this world? In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.